Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your host, Gene Turnbow. I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is... Martin Tays, author of the new book, Stealing Endeavor. And we are... We actually have Martin here in the studio with us today. Uh, normally, we record by Skype. Martin, it's a, it's great to have you with us in the studio. And I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So you didn't break into the uh, California Science Center and take the space shuttle. It's another endeavor entirely. You know, I tried, and it's just too big to carry away. <laughs> I hate when that happens. And not to mention too heavy. They do call it the flying brickyard. <laughs> and for a reason. Indeed. So which endeavor is it that you're stealing? Or who's stealing it? It's, Tell us about the book. Well, the endeavor was the first ship to leave Earth orbit, well, to, to leave the solar system uh, on a trip to Alpha Centauri. And since then, there have been lots and lots and lots of exploration. But unfortunately, in the close to 500 years since it first left, there has been no other life found. And that's not no other intelligent life. No other life at all. Not even a fossil. And, uh, yeah, I was reading that uh, in the story. Uh, is 20, 23 systems and some 140-odd planets and not a single sold anything on any of it. The only life they found was at home. It gets discouraging. Yeah. Which um which underscores the hopelessness of the SETI project. Uh they they were looking for the you know the modern um SETI project of course ex has extended into the time of this book. And uh, never found a darn thing. There's a few people still at it. They are basically considered to be harmless nuts. <laughs> but one person manages to get a signal. Dun, dun, dun. I could have said that better. I couldn't have said that better myself. <laughs> I just have this mental image of the, the surprised groundhog in my head after you said that. <laughs> You look <laughs> glaring over his shoulder. Old internet memes. <laughs> Never die, do they? So, um, so the signal comes and, uh. And then nobody believes the scientist who heard it, for one thing. They have too much invested in not believing it. 
Yeah, I suppose I do. And so she gets labeled as a nutcase and loses her job. Absolutely correct. So um, I the first thing uh, the first thing I found when I started reading it was that I absolutely loved the uh, uh, the way you write. You have this this vibrant, fluid, um, uh, colorful writing style. Thank you. It just immediately drew me in from from the first line of page one. It's pretty awesome stuff. It's it's snappy patter, which everybody loves these days. On I love TV. good dialogue. Yeah. And, of course, like anybody else, you want to write what you want to read. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of this has to do with um, there are a lot of relationships going on in here. My goodness. And, and it's further complicated by... Uh, old old relationships. Yeah, the fact that everybody's pretty much immortal. That's That was an interesting twist on society. And what... Uh, what led you to that particular uh, aspect of the uh, the universe building? Well, I've, I've had an interest in cryonics, and I've done some studying in it. And I was curious what would happen to a society where it actually existed and where, based on advances in medical research and nanotechnology, it, you could reach the point that not only could people be revived, but that they could functionally stop aging. And what's going to happen to society with that? And how stagnant would it get? And how weird would it get? I mean, I remember one line where somebody says, after a certain point, everybody's worked for everybody else. <laughs> and possibly has dated. Yeah. Yes. Well, I was going to complain about a lot of contemporary references. Aren't those going to get dated soon? But you explained it. <laughs> These people are old enough to have remembered when this movie came out or when that cartoon was big or when this song was sung. And even with us, you know, without immortality, we have a sweet spot where we get most of our contemporary cultural references. Hmm. So when we're 80 or when we're 90, we'll still be talking about the monkeys. (laughs) I'm afraid we will. Yeah. And the people around us will have no idea what we mean. Yeah, that's true. It's like belonging to a club. Yeah. So, so so you figured the 400-year-old people would be hanging around with other 400-year-old people and and the 40-year-old people wouldn't have anything to do with them, but they do, apparently. Well, it starts with the uh, one person who ends up being the protagonist's girlfriend who mm-hmm. is a history nut. Amelia. And Amelia. And she is interested in not only the history in general of the ship, but she decided that she really liked the protagonist, who's Moses, who uh, basically was the reason she, as she stated, she fell in love with him was he wasn't the first person to walk on another planet, but he was the first person to graffiti it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, yeah. unless there's something hap- that happened on the moon without... We are knowing about it, which is doubtful, really. They've played golf, but I don't think they left any scrawls. Well, and then there was the Doctor Who episode recently, uh, (laughs) God Save the Queen. Yes, well, nobody's actually done that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, this is the first book of three. Uh, It's a trilogy, a planned trilogy. 
Um, I assume that you have the storyline mapped out for the next two books? The next one pretty much completely, and the one after that uh, basic outline. I know where it's going to go. Excellent. I imagine in writing the next one, that will change, which is why Mm -hmm. I don't have anything more concrete. We're not gonna. You're not gonna take five years, and we'll have to get on your butt. Like uh, I, I would you're prefer not to pull out yeah. George R. R. Martin or David David Gerald in the Chitor series. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah. You know. That's okay. sort of my my twelfth of never uh, metaphor these days. <laughs> well, the last. Couture. No, I don't plan to kennel any Starks at that. Uh... <laughs> so, um, how? Uh, you haven't, you haven't left a lot of dead bodies in your wake in this in this uh, book, but people sure take their clothes off. They do, they do. <laughs> Mooning their bosses, you know, stranding the security guards, etc. It was a great use of the vandals, though. <laughs> so you had um, a while to think about uh, setting up this whole trilogy and a, a while to think about the idea of of uh, writing your first book in the first place, where where did that where did it start being? Um, you know, I have this idea for a book and start becoming. Uh, um, by God, I'm going to write this. Is this your first book? You this know, is my first, first book. Pool. I've had short stories. Okay, I have a short story in one of uh, Jerry Pinnell's anthologies. Oh, very good. Oh, I didn't realize. That's excellent. But so, uh, yeah, this is the largest thing I've written. So you've been uh, you've been writing science fiction actually for a while. It's just um, uh, this is the first large effort. The first yes, first Longer large project that. exactly. So where did you? Um, you must have had some uh, struggles learning. The, the basics of novel construction. Where did you go for your knowledge and, and information on uh, information on and how inspiration? To do this? Well, a lot of uh, reading, of course. Mm-hmm. The first thing any writer has to do is to read and read a lot, mm-hmm. not just for good examples, but for bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I grew up reading science fiction. I grew up reading humor. Mm-hmm. I liked them both, and I. Don't see enough interconnectivity between them. No, we uh, could have a book list of that. Well, there is. I mean, there's a lot of uh, Robert Aspirin. It's the perfect example. Oh, yes. Fools. I was thinking Harry Harrison. That too. Yes. The Stand of Steel Rat. Uh, Fool's Company. Yes. Uh, Xanth, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of humor in science fiction is kind of broad. I wanted to see if I could make a story that could stand by itself if you peel the humor off. That's important, mm, too. Yes, that's good. And I think it does. I think so. I believe that the humor adds quite a bit to it. I I agree with you there. I think the uh, um, I think having the characters as long lived as they are allows them to see the humor in situations that uh, that a shorter lived person, exactly. a shorter lived person, might not see. I mean the iron. There, irony abounds in this universe because everybody's done everything to everyone. <laughs> and they absolutely realize the, the, the old Zen line of this too will pass. Mm-hmm. They know eventually it'll go on and something good will happen. Or, for that matter, eventually it'll go on and something bad will happen. 
well, um, the uh, the idea that you can like do something severely criminal and then end up having to uh, make amends over two hundred years, you know, work it off and get back into everyone's good graces. It is possible to do it. It, uh, it would have to be in that situation because you can't put someone in prison for life, not if they're going to live a thousand years. Right. That that is a bit pointless. It is. Yeah. So, um, and it probably it probably lessens the the drive to do silly things. Well, um, yes and no. You know. I mean, if if death isn't normally a factor in your life, and and the younger people have probably never even seen death, the idea of defying death, how you know how how does that affect you? You know. Hmm. Well, with the older people, they grew up and they, you know, as we do, knowing that there's there is an end cap. Even if you don't know exactly where it is, at some point there there will be a definitive end to your life. The the younger people in the story have never known that because they've never known anyone who died. Pretty much, yes. So, were they going to be extra scared of of you know going and exploring because they might end up in a in a rather squishy, messy death? Or a, a number of them, not, but a large amount of them, yes. Actually, yeah. I, I make a note of it at a couple of places in there that risk aversion is a major and important part of the society. Yeah, because if you're just careful enough, you can live forever. But this whole being careful. Mm-hmm. And, and not uh, uh, not doing anything to uh, to push your luck. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, and then there are these guys <laughs> who are in their forties yeah. and bored already. I guess. <laughs> well, they're they're the the end of the bell curve. Okay. They're the group of people who have you know attracted each other together, and they are. Interested in doing something else and doing something different. So they end up going to Alpha Centauri as a trip and meet Moses, and then things occur, ending with stealing a spaceship. Well, but, well, no, but that is really just the beginning. beginning. Yes, beginning <laughs> yeah, with stealing a spaceship, yeah. yes. I love the idea of, uh, of a, uh, a junkyard that stretches over a thousand kilometers of a a planet, you know, uh, uh, the surface of one of the moons. Well, enough. You're out there for hundreds of years. It's gonna get that way. And mankind has been exploring for quite a while, and they gave up. This mm-hmm. stuff has to go somewhere. Yeah. So there's th- uh, the. Um, I suppose every one of those twenty-two systems has got a junkyard like that, huh? That's very possible. I have not thought about that. Yeah. So this ship that they steal is actually just one of a whole fleet of mothballed ships. It's the first of at least, well, there's two that are mentioned, but there's got to be at least a half dozen. Now, there are other ships, of course, but these are the actual designed for exploring. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this one has been very carefully preserved. Um, the uh, The interior has been kept at one atmosphere of nitrogen, to uh, keep the molecular welding from from seizing up all the uh, metal parts. Yeah, you really thought this through. I tried to. Thank you. Yeah, I, the, the whole the whole idea of uh, you know uh, the the scrapyard being exposed to a hard vacuum, and then you leave it for three hundred years, and you get molecular welding, and it kind of negates the advantage of having a bunch of spare parts lying around. Because you can't take them apart. Well, you beat on it enough. 
You know, I don't know. Uh, how strong is molecular welding when you get to that point? Is it, do we even become, know? Does it become essentially one piece of metal? For all intents and purposes, you can get it apart, but you destroy the surfaces. Mm. So mm-hmm. it would have to be at least remachined. So you need something in between that, you know, at least a gas layer or something to keep it from, from migrating together. Yeah, just the, the, uh, the ramifications of that much junk over that long a period of time and just being able to go into this junkyard and, uh, basically if it's new enough, you can find everything you need to rebuild a whole ship. Yeah, but how how old is to you know what, how long does it take molecular welding to happen in a vacuum? I don't know. We haven't been out in a vacuum often enough. Well, but there true. there is actually information enough. on this, isn't there? There is, yes. Oh, okay. Because you know, if it takes five hundred years, they've they've still got yeah, some wiggle but, room. Yeah, there. but nothing long term has been done. So yeah. Well, I do know that. Um, uh, molecular welding happens. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, let's see. That's marker uh, seventeen minutes. Okay. Uh, molecular welding is actually a problem in auto mechanics, even uh, just over thirty or forty years. Uh, you can actually get machine parts that are just jammed together, and you can't get them apart, no matter what. I but they're in co- close enough contact, yes. Yeah. No, I just thought they had enough gunk in them. <laughs> no, it's actually the absence of gunk. Mm, store things in. Hey, that makes sense. Right. That's why you pack them in oil. So, um, our first contact with the alien race. I mean, these guys are. That was an unmanned. There's an unmanned probe oh. from Earth, mm-hmm. uh, which ended up in a different star system about 97 light years away. They're lucky they hit anything. It was, depending on how you look at it, either luck or complete lack thereof, mm. as you find out later in the book. So, spoilers. Yeah, they uh, they intercept this probe and they spend years and years and years analyzing it and taking it apart and fiddling with it. And uh, there's some things they are just never going to understand about it, but some things that they do. As one of the alien characters says, you do not have to know how a car works, or in their case, a steam carriage works, to be able to operate it. Right. And And if you break your computer, the magic smoke comes out, and then it stops working. (laughs) It is all about the magic smoke. Yeah, because, you know, when the magic smoke escapes, (laughs) it stops. We used to say that in the Navy. Yeah. Magic smoke. So, um, let's see. So how about some backstory on Martin Taze, the, the writer? What, what brought you to, you know, what did you do before you decided to write? How'd you get here? Well, I'm from Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, grew up in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which is, uh, you know, the, the heart of recording in the South, uh, as far as many people are concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up joining the Navy and spent six years in the Navy in a, on a submarine. I was the reactor operator on board. Mm. Oh, a reactor operator on board. It's more than one. Um, I tell people that when the uh, captain ordered a head flank, I'm the person who went down into the reactor department and shoveled more uranium into the core. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I hope that's not literal. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I mean, people go, oh, my God. 
that's, that's, that's funny. That's well, funny. It's, it's an actual short IQ test. So, <laughs> um, you you actually just tweaked the rods out a little to yeah, heat it exactly. Up. Yes. Um, and so a lot of endeavor, the the feel of it and the technology and the the terminology mm-hmm. comes from my time on the submarine. So real life experience fuels this. That and to, explains, to, to a decent amount, yes. Yeah, that explains why it feels so. It, you're so comfortable with the environment as a reader. Because as I'm reading it. this, it feels like a real ship to me. I mean, it, it has that. It has the feel of solid metal. I was hoping for that. Thank yeah. you. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it's really nice stuff. I mean, this is this is one of the critical things that you have to have if you're doing a decent space opera, is that that ship must feel real, uh, because that's that's how you transport the reader to being uh, sort of a kibitzing crew member aboard whatever ship that is. It has to feel real. If it doesn't, you're done. You feel like you're on board. Yeah, you feel like you're on board that ship. Um, the parallel I'll give for TV and movies is um, 60s Star Trek, where we all grew up, versus the, the remake, the recent remake, and nobody felt comfortable with it. You couldn't see living on that ship. No, it would no. be like living in an iPhone. <laughs> where I say... Firefly, Serenity, that felt like a real ship. A grungy, beat-up ship. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's a used future. It's a used future, yes, <laughs> which I like. Uh, I don't like a shiny, clean future. I don't like it to be too grungy, but there is going to be some beat-up stuff. There'll be cracked screens. There'll be dirt in the corners. Mm-hmm. They don't have Roombas in, in, in zero-G. Or maybe they do. I don't know. They might, actually. I could see it working. I have to magnetize to the walls. <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, come to think of it. Yeah, that makes sense, you know, because you can't, you've got to have something that'll go in behind the control panels and eat the, uh, eat the moss. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, uh, I remember reading about a Russian Soyuz capsule that had been malfunctioning and they opened the panel and they found this oh, huge mass of mold, <laughs> just like a thick sponge of mold that was growing on the inside. I believe that. Space mold. And uh, mold around the seams of the windows. In any sort of sealed environment, you're going to see something like that. That's something we always had to watch for on the submarine is that type of thing, that back corners that had to be cleaned and watched. And yeah, they do a lot of cleaning on a submarine. Oh, oh, a lot. Wow. I wish you'd I had bet. nanites for that. That would have been nice, yes. So you have a, a big cast of characters, and it's it's uh, it's the people who are trying to put together the theft of this the the Endeavor, and uh, another group of people who are sort of along for the ride without realizing exactly what the full ramifications of the mission are, and then a, yet a third group of people who are busy trying to... Trying to stop them. Trying to to spy on them and, and stop them from doing whatever it is they're doing, and uh, uh, <laughs> getting... And at least one annoying reporter... Yeah. Like, like we are. <laughs> so you've got a lot of you've got a lot of uh, people moving in, uh, uh, striving in different directions. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, dramatic tension. And one of the things that allows, of course, is that when you finish a scene, then you can stop and go somewhere else 
so that you can see what the other characters are doing and follow them along so you don't have to get bored with one group by staying there for too long. And that's something which I hadn't I, thought about. Which I like yeah. in other in other stories too. So. Yeah, I noticed I noticed that uh every not necessarily every chapter, but uh but frequently you change points of view and you change the the group and setting to to watch the progress of whatever other faction is uh is working. And mm-hmm. one of the one of the interesting ones is the alien race. And they're, uh, I get the feeling that there's jokes in there in the names of of those characters that I'm not getting. The names of the aliens? Yeah. One of them looks like it's almost says snuggly. It all started. Uh, it's uh, my personal opinion on his pronunciation. It's probably around snuggly, but <laughs> it honestly began with uh, one of the people who's doing editing on it. I asked her, so what would you like to see in the book? And she said, use the word snuggly. <laughs> okay. I, I spotted thought, that one, huh? I <laughs> thought that would be an awesome name for an alien. Snuggly. Especially if he didn't realize how silly it sounded. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> They've used that gag in uh, science fiction before. Oh, it's, oh, absolutely. It's been used. <laughs> so self-publishing. Um more and more authors are doing this. Uh, it is not the stigma it once was. Um, well, it also doesn't cost as much for a so-called vanity press as it used to. Well, that's yeah, that's you didn't true have to be a rich person to to get a book. Publish on demand now. You know, you used to have to used to have to pay for a print run, and there was no. There and was, then you'd you be stuck with it. piles and piles of books. And I remember when I was uh, when I was fourteen or fifteen. Uh, I was my, you know, walking, I think, I can't remember where I was going, but I remember going into a bookstore and just looking around and hanging around. And here comes this guy with a wagon full of his art books. And he was going, the poor man was going from bookstore to bookstore trying to get placements for his books. And he had $4,000 worth of these books. <sighs> And he was trying to get them moving. And he had no mechanism at all for doing it. And uh, Sure he did. It was called a wagon. It, yeah, it was called it's a wagon. It was called a wagon, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I can't imagine. I, I don't, it was, uh, he had done a photography book or something, uh, you know. And in those days, it was, it was a lot harder to do that because there was no digital photography. And, uh, you know, quite an achievement really to, to, to do the book and lay it all out and get it all done. Did you buy one? No, I was a kid. Oh. Yeah, I couldn't afford it. Uh, and the subject wasn't interesting anyway, but the, the point being that, um, we are free of all that now. Absolutely. Well, look at, um, uh, what is his name? The, the, the Martian. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Weir. Uh, Weir, yes. Yeah. Because that was self-published. I mean, that, that was, was. I, I, I just and, like, I like indie. And he got, he got indie turned published. down, I think, two or three we times. Got, we got a, a review copy of it. I, I didn't think it was. Yeah, well, yeah. It, 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 it had gotten turned down. Blog posts. He, yeah, he's, hmm. he, uh, and he had tried to get a publisher for it and he got turned down a few times and finally he decided, I'm going to do this myself. And it wasn't until after it became wildly successful that he got a publisher. Ah. Exactly. 
And it's an awesome book. Oh, it is. Yeah. It's pretty crunchy with um, thick, uh, uh, a lot of real science. Oh, it's very hard science. That's neat. Yeah, I, I love the, the hard science. I am not exactly what I'd call a, a science nerd. I used to be, but not anymore because of all the... Uh, all the advances in astronomy and, and I, Susan pointed me at an article recently about dark matter and how we have, uh, mapped it. Yeah. Well, what's happened is that, uh, they used the background radiation from the Big Bang and mapped the variations in density, uh, and then extrapolated that and tried to predict what would happen to, uh, uh, the distribution of matter in the visible universe based on that initial pulse, impulse. And they figured out that, well, they've, first of all, they successfully mapped about, um, 30% of the visible sky. And, uh, what they've, or, uh, no, it's 13%. It's not a big slice. But what they have mapped out happens to match pretty closely to what they thought it should, uh, should be so that they can take the initial radiation signature and, and the, the distribution of the energy and extrapolated that and correctly modeled what happened 450 billion years later, however old the universe is. So the next time someone tells you they can't get a, a can't can't tell what happened in an auto accident around the corner from you, they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm just the idea of having to have that much stuff in in uh, uh, in their head before they write a book. I just find terrifying. Very few writers do, though. They have friends. I mean, uh, Niven and Pornell wouldn't wouldn't be the hard writer, hard science guys they are without, you know, Dan Alderson and, and That's his exactly heirs. Exactly what I was just thinking, Dan you know? Alderson, <laughs> just the the great consultant to the to the stars <laughs> about the stars. That was a brilliant man. Oh yeah, yeah. It's I like Joe Haldeman and. And uh, but, other other writers. I'm like sure they they've got their brain trust. No no one scientist knows everything. Yeah. Well, Joe Haldeman in particular, though he's he's kind of a brain trust himself. He's he's uh, uh he has quite a, a scientific background on his own. Well, that's good. So don't forget also when Ringworld came out, yes. there was lots and lots and lots of input or, or feedback that Niven got from his readers mm-hmm. that he could use to fix what they saw to be still difficulties with the Ringworld design. So you go to Ringworld Engineers, and there's the spill mountains, and there's the engines that correct it for uh, precessing, and there's all sorts of details that made it much more believable. There's believable for, but you know, even more so. Huh. I hadn't, I hadn't known that about uh, Ringworld. I think that's why he had to write sequels. <laughs> Very likely, yes. And there's a trillion stories you could tell on a place that big. And, of course, no matter how much research you do, there's the famous story that in the very first Ringworld edition, he had the Earth spinning in the wrong direction. Yeah, well, Which is so easy to do. Well, you pick a direction and it's going that way. How, you know, how do you... 
Well, he how just said it, how was it wrong? I he don't, just said west for east, I believe, if I remember correctly. I didn't know it had a west or an east, really. Well, no, it's the, the it was the originally you set on the earth, and then it, it moved away from there. And oh, when Louis okay. was going around the the planet, oh, 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 that for his yes. birthday <laughs> didn't mm-hmm. want his birthday to end, so exactly. he kept jumping time zones. Well, I can understand that. Which is a great idea for extrapolating a technology, and then what people will do with it. Yes. When using the teleport booth to advance, you know, keep his birthday going as long as possible. <laughs> so, of course, when you hit the dateline, then it's all over. Well, yeah, but, but uh, getting, you know, 24 hours of birthday and then more. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's the problem we have, you know, with the station because we have people who work for us all over the planet. And, and uh, I'm you have to remember what day it is. I'm for- constantly forgetting that our, our, our DJ, Mr. Vestek, who does Mr. Vestek's Outpost, he's in a completely different time zone. When I'm waking up, he's going to bed. And I'll, like, ping him in the afternoon. He says, dude, it's like four in the morning. What are you doing? <laughs> See, I'm used to that. But yeah. when he has a noon show here, it's eight o'clock there. And that, that works out very well for him. So, um, yeah, the characters, um, Amelia in particular, uh, I keep wanting to put cast her as Karen Gillan in my head. <laughs> I, I picture um Amelia who is Amy. <laughs> yes. No, I picture okay. um Felicia Day. Ooh. Okay. But yeah, you know, it, it you're welcome to picture whoever you wish. That's true. Yeah, you know, whenever you create someone you, you have somebody that fills it in in the back of your mind so you can visualize what they're doing. Mental casting. Yeah. Yeah, and I was I was thinking Amelia Pond as well. I could see that. Yep. Well, the casting... Because the name is the same, you know. Yeah, well, that kind of suggests. So, um, gosh, I only got up to page 222 before before we got on the air, and it's a... Considering we haven't had the the readers for, for you know, as long as 24 hours, I think, I thought we did pretty well. That's an awfully good job, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, um... So many, uh, so many talk show hosts, uh, get on and ask rhubarb questions because they haven't read the material. So that's something that we pride ourselves we on. We try. Not doing. Lord knows we try. <laughs> ask uh, anybody. We're it. the most trying people they know. Ha ha. <laughs> so when is book two coming out? And well, when is book one coming out? That's, that's, uh, imminent. Well, well, book one is up right now for pre, um, pre-order. Pre-order. And on the 19th, it goes live. Yay. So any purchases between now and then goes, they, I'll bail out in the, I think they do it noon. I mean, I, I'm sorry, midnight. Mm-hmm. So sometime in the morning of the 19th, which will be a week from this Saturday, uh, they should be hitting everybody's, uh, Kindles. So. Okay. So this is Kindle only. At this this point. is Kindle only at this point. Yes. All right. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. You know, if we wanted to get a hard, hard copy version of it. How would you do it? Then we and, wait. And I guess we wait. There is ways to do that through uh, mm-hmm. Amazon, through the Kindle uh, Direct Publishing Group, but I have not, I've investigated it, but at this point I'm staying on trying to get the book out itself and then mm-hmm. I will go ahead and address that because I've had people request hard copies. Yeah, have it and out I would like, in time. I'd like to have one myself. There you go. But just, for the autumn the... and winter convention circuit, you know? Just to have the awesome. physical thing, you know, because you can't sign a Kindle. Exactly. Well, you can, but it kind of messes it gets, things Well, up. and it gets a bit congested after a while. They, um, 
you'll get uh, like postcards or little, little like almost like business cards mm-hmm. with signatures on them these yeah, days. Yeah. And then you keep them in your Kindle case. Yeah, or something like <laughs> a, a, a an cover of the, card. the book. Ex- yeah. Sign the back. Ex Libris uh, business cards. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Um, so... So that's when book one comes out. What's how about book two? When and what's it called? Trying endeavor. Trying. Trying endeavor. All right. And book three will be winning endeavor. Well, that that sounds encouraging. Of course, it yeah. depends who's won it. I mean, they could have won it in a poker game. Okay. Everyone says they want to play poker with Moses because he, you know. <laughs> it's no poker face at all. New. No. Am I that obvious? Yes. Yes, yes you are. <laughs> Yeah, he's uh he's a piece of work. He's just <laughs> and, and uh, dude, you're a piece of work and you're a tenth his age. Yeah, I suppose I am. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I wanted to do with him is that when have when you have people who have created really old characters, which Moses is four hundred and eighty seven years old, mm-hmm. they try to make them all knowing and all wise and unflappable. I wanted him still to be human. I really got that. And, um, and it's, it's true of a lot of the other, uh, a lot of the other characters in the book. It's like, um, uh, one, you have these interstitial quotes, um, some of them from books that have, have already existence, many from books that do not yet exist. (laughs) And one of them, one of them was a Groucho Marx quote, which was uh, uh, something about um, uh, when you get to be as old as I am. Some I don't know. No, it, I think it had something more to do with you know. I'm going to cut this because I don't remember the quote. <laughs> Maybe I'll leave it in and just show what what a silly man I am. Well, the quotes that are at the beginning of the chapters are all real. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tried to get them to, to have a, a humorous effect on the, 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 the upcoming part of the story. The, the, uh, article and magazine and book excerpts between them are from books from this universe. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Uh, the, um, but there are, there are several comments about age and aging and wisdom and how, uh. Lack thereof sometimes. Yeah, lack thereof. Sometimes so age disappears some, by some, itself. I yes, think that was Woodrow some, Wilson. Yes, Woodrow Wilson. That was the one I was thinking of. Some age, wisdom does not always come with age. Sometimes age comes by itself. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's really, Really true of a lot. I know a lot of old people that really never picked up the wisdom that came with the age along the way. And, well, and, I mean, uh, if you're a dippy young person, you're liable to be a dippy old person. I mean, it all depends <laughs> on what you do with it, what you got. Yeah, or or how important it is to you to to better yourself. And uh, you know, I, I think I think Moses basically just didn't really care. <laughs> he knew he was going to be there a long time. It didn't matter to him that he wasn't uh, that he wasn't putting the pedal to the metal because it, there's no he didn't have there's a no goal incentive. At that point. There's yeah. no incentive to at, at the beginning of the book. He's actually a, as I as I say the the, the write up for the book itself. He's a professional drunk. Mm-hmm. 
Um, actually, uh, Bill Fawcett read the book at one point and asked me, why is this guy, you know, an alcoholic in the future where they can get rid of something like that so easily? I said, because he's bored. Oh, yeah, which is a good reason, uh, a, a good explanation for all sorts of bad behavior in human beings, you know, regardless of their lifespan. Every yeah, humankind. Responsible for more mayhem and destruction than practically anything else. And as we grow old, you know, more long-lived than that kind of thing when we've tried everything, as far as we know, then there will be more boredom. There will people who will retreat into things like that, or gaming, or mm -hmm. drugs even. Why do they still have hangovers if they've got health nanites? <laughs> You'd think they would balance the, the electrolytes well, at that point. You can, absolutely. But he chose not to mm. because he had to punish himself in some way for continuing to do that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it also helped him kind of he, – he knew that it was destructive and that uh, – Precisely. Uh, that he needed some sort of governor to keep him from just... Just completely staying drunk all the time. Right. And he he was very well aware of that. I, that's the impression I got from it. And honestly, but, uh, Amy coming along and coming into his life is what made him change. That and the idea that he could work on this new project and work on the ship and who would have a goal and have something to do, something positive. That's a pretty uh, pretty good incentive. I mean, if I had the chance, I'd do it. You know, if my, if my life had gone in no particular direction and I was suddenly handed a, an, opportunity, uh, an opportunity to fix up an old starship and head, head off on a a mission of exploration, I'd, I'd probably do it. I'd like to think we all would. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I'd like to think that that... Uh, well, at least he's got an, a real engineer, but the rest of those puppies, I'm not so sure about. Yeah, they're kind of wackadoo, some of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are, for all intents and purposes, kids yeah. in yeah. this universe. They're, they're only in their 40s. Mm -hmm. So and, and the entire thing of maturing takes place over a longer period of time. Uh, at one point later in the book, a woman is asked, you know, how old are you? And she says, well, I'm uh, 84 come September. And the person asking me says, good, because the person you're interested in likes them young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, wow. Just the the worlds of potential just are sort of unfolding in my mind as I, I know this. I know it's, it's just, just about a... so much you could do with this universe and these characters is that something you'd consider writing writing another series after this one using the same characters may, or it not is, the same characters and well, the same maybe, or maybe not the same characters but certainly the same concept it'd be interesting to see or or the same the same uh the same universe Yes, the same universe. So yeah. that you have universe 20, continuity. Got at least 20 other planets, inhabited worlds to mess mess up. And there are other alien races out there. They just haven't found them. Because the universe really is that big a place. And how short-sighted of humans to, to think that just because they'd found uh, uh, 20, 22 or 23 other star systems within reach and not found any life on them, 
how how limited of them to think that that was all there was in the whole universe? Well, they didn't need any more. They're they're and generally fueled expensive. by yes. They 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 had enough room to to with uh, geoengineering. Uh, they had enough room to spread out pretty much as much as they wanted to, and it's very expensive to go to another system. Once you get there, there are um, my only hand waving, my only actual magic physics is a the ability of humans to create their own super string, which is called pseudo string, mm-hmm. and they use that to build gates between systems. And everything else, I mean, there's not even artificial gravity. No, uh, I noticed else, that, and I, I was pleased about that. Too, everything else is as far as I could do uh, real physics. Mm-hmm. So there's just there's just the one uh, the one hand wavium, uh, <laughs> hand wavium. I like that. But you know, you go out and you have a ship that you've got to spend literally decades in before you can get to another system. Mm-hmm. But and once you put the one, magic door there, bingo. Which <laughs> uh, in one of the uh, uh, book quotes between the chapters, it, somebody talks about the fact that. This is, in fact, the way it's what screwed people up is if you're on an island and you have a magic door that you can step in one and out of the other. You get in your boat, you row to another island, and you set up the other end of the door, and so you can walk between them. And from that point on, you don't go to sea again. Mm -hmm. So they weren't exploring as much as finding another place to put another door. And it just reached the point that they, they were finding nothing else, and they lost heart. They didn't decide, decided there was too much effort and too much money to explore anymore. It's all down to money, isn't it? That is. You know, no, no, uh, economic advantage. And, uh, yeah, that's. And no that's pressure a, yeah, of, of a, population, war, mm-hmm. resources, or anything else. That, that's an important aspect of, of, uh, a spacefaring society. There has to be, uh, there has to be a reason to do it. And uh, you know, if if you've expanded humanity to the point where uh, uh, you don't have a resource problem, then and you've given up on finding new friends, because that's whole, a lot of what we are looking forward to. Then the and whole thing exploring out. is finding other people, finding other life, mm-hmm. finding other civilizations. We want to do that. If we've given up believing that they exist, then it's going to be a major disincentive. That or you're going to have to find other incentives. Bingo. Argument. You know, a, you know a, an urge to to reproduce, to to uh, seed the galaxy with your, you know, what if the the long awaited and much desired ancient race is us? <laughs> well, at this point, what we're looking forward to is getting out of the system so that uh, we don't have, as Selikowski put it, all of our eggs in one basket. Yes. So if we are at that point in 22 different systems spread out over at this, you know, hundreds of light years, we're at least theoretically safe from a humanity ending event. Mm-hmm. So that's one major, major incentive that's already been taken care of. Yeah, reducing, eliminating, eliminating the single point of failure problem. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that either. Hmm. That's a good point. Uh, I am 
Gene Turnbow. You're listening to the Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. Uh, my co-host is Susan Fox. And our guest this evening is Martin Tays. Howdy. We have been talking to him about his new book, Stealing Endeavor, uh, for about the last hour. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Event Horizon. We're very glad you were able to stop by and actually be here physically in the studio with us today. It has been my pleasure. I've enjoyed this. You have been listening to episode 178 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for August 12th, 2017. Our guest today has been Martin Tays, the author of the new science fiction novel Stealing Endeavor, available now on pre-order from Amazon.com. Your hosts have been Gene Turnbow and Susan Fox. This episode will air again at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, tomorrow afternoon, that's a Sunday, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. Krypton Radio is listener-supported geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from avid listeners just like you. If you liked this evening's program and enjoy listening to Krypton Radio, please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and contribute whatever you can. For less than a grande cup of anything from Starbucks, you can make an enormous difference. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2017 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.